Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. This is the Daily Blast from the New Republic, produced and presented by the DSR Network. I'm your host, Greg Sargent. Donald Trump is strong. Donald Trump is dominant. Donald Trump is defying political gravity. You've probably heard some variation of those ideas lately, especially now that Trump triumphed over Nikki Haley in the South Carolina primary by 20 points and is close to locking up the GOP presidential nomination. Yet the GOP primaries have shown that Trump has real problems among independents. And this week, Trump is scrambling to delay his criminal trials, showing he fears his legal travails are a serious liability. So what if it's wrong to treat Trump as an exaggeratedly strong and dominant political figure right now? Here to discuss this today is Julia Azari, a political science professor at Marquette University, who co-wrote a great piece for MSNBC.com arguing that, quote, eight years later, people are still getting the 2016 election wrong. Azari says we've all overlearned the lessons of Trump's victory that year and that this distorts our understanding of the present. Welcome, Julia. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'd like to suggest a term for the phenomenon you've identified here, 2016 brain. Yeah, that, I think that that uh, makes a lot of sense. So the just to kind of give a little context to the piece, I co-wrote this with Seth Maskett of the University of Denver, and both of us have done a substantial amount of work on the way that different people in the political system interpret presidential elections. So the work, the work that I did 
Uh, my book on this came out in 2014, kind of stresses that this has been building over time in American politics since about the late 1960s and has really taken off in the 21st century. It's kind of over-interpretation of elections. Um, and then Seth's work on this has been specifically about the way that, um, in his case, Democratic uh, activists have interpreted the 2016 election. So we find a lot of examples of, uh, of 2016 brain. Trump just won the South Carolina primary by 20 points, but Haley got nearly 40% of the vote and Trump has a real problem with independence. And, and Trump's legal travails will get worse between now and election day. And all signs are that this matters to voters. Yet a lot of analysis still defaults to the idea that he's this kind of strong, dominant, reality-defying uh, figure. And is that itself a function of 2016 brain in some sense? He does have dominance with Republican voters. Um, th that's true. But Republican voters are only one segment of the electorate. And that the in independent segment um, tends to be the one that, that decides elections. And it's not clear that, that many of these things are you know, that Trump has said or done are real electoral juggernauts. And as, as we quote uh, New York Times columnist Jamel Bowie in the piece, Trump has never commanded a national majority in really a meaningful way. He hasn't won a national majority. He hasn't had majority approval. And his party has really struggled in midterm and congressional elections. It's just, it's very unclear that there is empirical evidence behind these interpretations. I want to put a pin in that there. You get at this in your piece as well. On a fundamental level, a lot of pundits and reporters have simply in, have failed to internalize the basic idea that the Trump era is mostly a story of GOP electoral losses, that again and again, an anti-Trump majority coalition has, has mobilized against him. I mean, Trump has presided over the worst string of losses for the GOP in what, over half a century, right? And one really interesting point you make in your piece with Seth is that Haley as GOP nominee might do better than Trump, including helping Republicans down ballot where the GOP sustained pretty big losses under Trump. Yet few political commentators really have internalized Trump's weaknesses and failures. That's a point that obviously Democratic strategist Simon Rosenberg has been particularly forceful on, but it seems like the political science bears it out. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right, um, and it's not surprising it, for a couple of reasons. One is that Trump's party building has been really uneven. Um, it's not that he hasn't done any investment in down ballot races, but it's that that investment has not always been very strategic and is usually focused on himself. So. We saw that really bear out in 2022, where Trump backed a number of candidates who were, I think, you know, not not terribly, um, you know, it wasn't a terribly large stretch to see them as not great fits for the electorates that they were trying to win over. Um, and where a more kind of mainstream Republican who did not embrace things like election denialism or extremism on reproductive rights, extreme opinions that do not represent much of the American electorate, that those type of candidates might have done better in Pennsylvania or Arizona or Ohio or Michigan or Wisconsin, um, where, where I'm speaking to you from. The, you know, that, I think that's really the, the thing with Trump um, is it's not terribly shocking that he has not been a hugely effective down ballot party builder. 
Um, but then there's there's all the other pieces. There's all of the baggage. There's the lawsuits. Um, there's just the fact that he's uh, he was a deeply polarizing president. And there's the age factor, which also might work in Nikki Haley's um, in Nikki Haley's favor. If you if you don't want to talk about age, I am totally fine not talking about candidate age. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> I think just bearing out the point you just made, it's worth remembering that a lot of these 2022 Republican candidates who were in the MAGA mold lost precisely because Democrats went out of their way to say that they were MAGA, that they were basically Trump mini-me's. And, and so that did become a liability. And I think there was a presumption even leading into 2022 that that wouldn't happen, that it wouldn't be a liability. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think that 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 came out somewhat out of, I wouldn't say out of nowhere. I think people were not, that we did not have clear data on that issue. Um, although, again, I think the data was fairly suggestive in the sense that if you look at, I mean, if you look at presidents over time in general, presidents have sort of gotten less popular as, as we've become more polarized, right? They don't like have that cushion of support um, from the other party. But Trump, you know, Trump's 2016 victory was treated kind of like a you know Reagan 1980 kind of victory, another famously overspun mandate. But at least there's some there there in the sense that Reagan won a national majority, um, a small one, but a national majority. Trump did not, right? Trump lost the popular vote. What he did was he surprised everybody. Um, and there's also research that suggests that that when an election that surprises people is sort of more susceptible to those narratives. People really confused a surprise election victory and an effective electoral college strategy with, uh, with a kind of message about what the electorate really meant. Um, and I yes. think that's, that's what's happened here. Yeah, and I think you what you point to there is actually a broader and deeper failure in our discourse that I wanted to bring up with you. There's a meme on social media that mocks reporters for making safaris to diners in Trump country, right? That's comical, but it reflects a very real and profound problem with how the American electorate is depicted in the media. I joked the other day that if you want to find the median voter, don't go to a Trump diner, go to a suburban office park with a lot of medical services in it. These places are often populated with the multiracial working and lower middle classes. And what I want to ask you is, do you think non-rural voters, especially those in increasingly diverse suburbs, are basically poorly understood in our political coverage and discourse? And what's the real world impact of that? Yeah, I think that that's true. Although that's an area where maybe, maybe to your point, um, I don't feel like I totally understand how I would how I would prove that empirically. But yeah, I do. I do think that's true. I mean, I think certainly there's a racial dimension. Certainly there's a sort of you know r- urban, rural, suburban dimension. I like your suggestion of going to a suburban office park um, with medical workers. Certainly, I think it's impossible to to talk about the working class. Um, in any definition of that, people without college degrees or people who are under a certain income bracket without talking about people of color. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that really got lost. And this sort of larger set of racial issues that came out of the, um, out of the 2016 election, I think for sure. I think also we, we get, Often we get these discourses, right, that slice up the electorate in particular ways that are sort of make some other point. And that's not, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the uh, the soccer moms in 1996. Um, 
And that's not necessarily representative of how influential these groups are in the, you know, in, in creating a broader majority. It's not necessarily representative of, you know, what everything that's going on in the electorate and people are, people are complicated. The electorate is, is complicated. And we definitely got a string of kind of here is what real America is like um, interviews of some of these people in diners. And the other problem with that was my understanding is a number of those people were actually Republican activists um, that, which is fine. Be a Republican activist. That's great. But they were portrayed as kind of, here's an average everyday person. And that wasn't totally true. And it seems like some folks in the media are kind of eager to, to, to go that way. I mean, I think a big part of the problem here is that a lot of commentators and reporters identify with the professional classes in some sense and worry above all about being perceived as liberals who are missing the quote unquote real story of what's really going on out there among people who aren't like them. And that's admirable in a way, right? Like that, that should be an animating impulse perhaps, but doesn't it create a kind of overcorrection that itself becomes a problem. I, I, I think you talk in your piece about the, that there are real stakes in, in misrepresenting the electorate and its aspirations. I think that's right. And I wrote a piece a while ago um, about my own book and kind of about how election overinterpretation paved the way for the big lie. One of my criticisms of myself is that I, I wrote this book, came out in 2014, really emphasized the way that election narratives kind of take on a life of their own. And I didn't think enough about the racial implications. So to me, that really, that really looks that way. I also have just finished a book about race. So everything kind of looks like a, you know, you have a hammer, everything looks like a dangerous rusty nail. Um, I do think I will say as someone who lives in an urban, a diverse urban area in the middle of the country, I think a lot of journalists are based on the coasts and, you know, a non-trivial number of people maybe haven't, spent time in the rest of the country to understand how urban and suburban and diverse it is. Um, I often hear this from colleagues. They take a job here in Wisconsin and then they ask their friends and family, ask them about the cows in the middle of the street. And, right. <laughs> you know, Milwaukee is an urban area. There are no yeah, farms. It's like <laughs> they kind of, they, they wander into the industrial Midwest and then they're shocked to discover that there are cities and suburbs there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. With, with many of the same, amenities that you have on the coast, um, on either coast, but also with, you know, with some distinct, distinct post-industrial legacies, distinct racial legacies. So, I mean, I think that the, the lesson here is really to think about identity in a way that's, that's intersectional and overlapping. Um, also to just be really cautious about how we interpret an election, because every election is going to be driven by any number of identity groups and campaigns and random events. And so the, the lessons that elections have to tell us are there, but they're not going to be clear and glaring and kind of, you know, neat and, uh, and tidy. Right. I mean, obviously, we shouldn't discount the fact that Biden is trailing Trump in some polls and Biden has obvious liabilities. No one should discount that. Still, as you point out in your piece, the flip side of 2016 brain is that Biden's strengths are being potentially underestimated. And I want to try to get to the, the deeper point your argument makes. What's really being underestimated here is the reach and durability of the coalition that's kind of coming together against Trump and against reactionary overreach by what is clearly a minority coalition, yet has outsized power in 
red state legislatures that are passing anti-choice, anti-LBGTQ, uh, pro-book banning policy. Is that basic force that the reaction to the reactionaries being underestimated as a force in our politics, and might that translate to support for Biden in the end? I think that that's right. Let me explain. I think there's sort of two things to look at there. And one is to think about the what I've been calling the pro-democracy coalition. I've heard other people call it an anti-MAGA coalition. I prefer to take proper names out um, and to just say it's a, it's a pro-democracy coalition. And, and it ranges everywhere from moderate Republicans, disaffected Republicans to very far left Democrats and beyond. I think that that is a majority coalition, and we've seen that across many cycles, it's it's durable. Um, it's not about Biden. Biden is the, the person who's been hired by this coalition to do a speci- specific job. And to the extent that presidential election politics tend to focus on a on a particular individual, then Biden, I think, is going to be you know is going to have all the liabilities of an incumbent president plus. A, you know, a number of challenges um, in, in terms of his kind of media presence, his age, whatever. Um, so I think that's the that's the first critical thing. And the second thing stems from that, which is that you do have a very large and diverse majority. And that's all, all the majorities that we have had, the political majorities we've had in this country have been like this. Um, they've been very, very diverse. And also, you know, there is an assumption, I think, in the way that we're taught how government works, that majority rule is just like a thing that happens. And it turns out majority rule is a thing that you have to very carefully um, organize around, especially because of the way our electoral system works, especially because of the Electoral College and the Senate. So there needs to be a kind of organized interest um, and kind of organi- organizational energy around a pro-democracy coalition. And that can look like people who organize around protecting the right to vote or around choice or around economic issues. Um, it could be people who work through the Democratic Party and not. Um, but it, it does actually in, require citizen involvement. Right. I think ultimately the big story here maybe is that a lot of liberals and Democrats are very fatalistic about Trump. They, they see his durability in the face of what should have killed him off entirely, right? And conclude that he's invincible, essentially. But, but maybe, maybe Trump is actually weaker than he looks. Isn't that a plausible conclusion to draw from all this? Yeah, I think, again, it's the other piece of this is to separate out institutions from individuals. Um, Trump is not invincible, but the presidency is I don't want to say the presidency is damn near invincible. Is this a podcast where I can say damn? Um, so in fact, you can curse as much as you want. In fact, I don't. I don't think. I don't think we curse enough on here. Okay, well, I'll keep that in mind. So, um, I've been on good behavior, but I, I think that I mean truly. You know, I've just finished this book. It's about race and presidential impeachment, and one of the clear takeaways is impeachment is not effective. Um, And that, I mean, I think this is part of the problem. Like we're used to actually the presidential gatekeeping process being the thing that keeps the system safe. And when someone like Richard Nixon or Andrew Johnson or Donald Trump gets through, we don't actually have a lot of safeguards on the back end. Um, And we have a system that is so presidency centered that holding presidents accountable is really destabilizing. Um, And that seems to even be true 
you know, it seems to be, carry through to the post-presidency in a way that no one has anticipated. So I don't think that is about Trump. Trump does have some advantages. I don't want to say he doesn't. He has a lot of name recognition. He has a strong following. He has a movement. He's got a lot of strength in his own party coalition. Um, but I do think we need to separate out um, the institution from the person. And I guess the other piece I'll say to bring that back to 2016 brain is that I think for a lot of people who were unhappy about Trump about the victory in 2016 is that felt like something that sort of happened to them. And it also felt maybe like something that was, was lurking and people didn't pick up on. This is a little bit squishy and difficult to, to verify, but it's like, I think that people feel, you know, they felt like they were really off guard about that and that there's something dominant or inevitable about Trump. And that's, that's, I think, really rooted in emotion and not in fact. I'm going to commit heresy here and say that our response to the Trump threat, the institutional response, was actually a lot stronger than we often give it credit for. He was he was the president while he was trying to overturn the, the uh, election outcome, right? He had a lot of power at his disposal. He tried to manipulate pretty much every lev- lever of power that he could get his hands on to subvert democracy. Um, And he's tried every institutional trick he can possibly muster right now to try to, including getting the House of Representatives to function as his kind of bodyguards against accountability. And yet he's being prosecuted. The the Electoral College count in Congress on January 6, 2021 happened even after the violent attack that he incited. And uh, it was an election that happened despite the incredibly destabilizing conditions of COVID and Trump essentially levying threats and, and, and intimations of violence at election workers across the country. And they all performed heroically. And then a lot of these players testified um, against Trump, or at least in Congress, gave evidence against Trump. And so what's your basic feeling on the question of how strong our institutions are in the face of him? That's a good question that I haven't, I haven't really developed kind of my, my take um, on that. I think all of that's correct. I think that it is, it, it was quite remarkable in 2020 what happened, but it was, you know, uh, quite remarkable the extent to which people across party and ideological lines across different institutional positions, including judges that Trump himself had appointed, upheld the basic values of, of how our elections are supposed to work. And the, the decentralized nature of our election system is a giant, giant pain in the ass in many ways. But in that, it, that was the kind of scenario in, in which it was um, designed to function, I think, and it did. Um, it's also, it's astounding to me that people went back to the chamber after January 6th and some of them voted against certifying Pennsylvania's votes, but it is also astounding to me how quickly they got back to that chamber. So I do think, I think our institutions are reasonably well-designed to limit kind of what presidents can do, but it's not, they're not terribly well-designed to hold presidents accountable in this kind of broader way other than through the electoral process. Right. I think that's very clear, although I would, I, and I forgot to mention this in, in my litany of how we performed well, he, he is being prosecuted. And let's not forget, yes. that was really in doubt um, 
maybe a year and a half ago. And once again, the, the meme on social media was that he's invincible, right? He, he can't possibly ever be held accountable. So your points, points are well taken that it does, it does seem like the system isn't designed to, to hold him accountable, to hold presidents, ex-presidents accountable. But, and especially with the 14th Amendment stuff, I think the 14th Amendment challenges are obviously going to fail. But uh, I think there's some cause for optimism in here. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, I definitely don't know um, more than anyone else how how the prosecutions are going to turn out. Um, there's a lot of counts there, and it seems likely that something will stick in some form or fashion. I do think that's, I do think that's right, and I think you're also right to point out that people have withstood enormous amounts of threats and violence um, to deal with that, and that just that says a lot of different things about our politics. So I think, you know, like the 2016, 2020, or any other election, I think this sort of post-election legal period really defies uh, a simple and unidimensional narrative. Yep. And it really may turn out that the the Trump monster is, is not quite as scary as we think he is. Well, Julia Azari, thank you so much for coming on with us. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to The Daily Blast with me, your host, Greg Sargent. The Daily Blast is a New Republic podcast and is produced by Riley Fessler and the DSR Network. 